Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode of the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Stanton Gill. He is the co-owner and CFO of McBride and Gill Falcon Ridge Fruit Orchard since 2002, where he grows over 22 acres of fruits and 103 cultivars of apples since 1995. He's been a tenured professor with Montgomery College Germantown campus in the landscape tech program. He teaches at night in this accredited program. And he is a tenured faculty member of the University of Maryland Extension, working as the state IPM and entomology specialist stationed at Central Maryland Research and Education Center. As an extension specialist, whoo, is, uh, do you have any free time, Stanton? No, absolutely not. (laughs) So let's dive into all things persimmon growing is going to be our main topic, but then we're going to also talk about some other unusual fruit trees we can grow in the mid-atlantic but before we go into all that stanton we like to ask people on the garden dc podcast were they born with a green thumb and chlorophyll in their veins i don't think i was born with a a green thumb by any means the um i did come from a uh, orchard family my great grandfather in pennsylvania uh ran an orchard uh out in an area called loretta it's just outside of altoona pennsylvania my grandfather, when he uh, married my grandmother, inherited that orchard, and he spent all of his time cutting those trees down <laughs> because at that point he said no one made money on fruit trees at that time, uh, and they made money on liquor, and so he grew vegetables that make liquor, believe it or not. <laughs> hmm. yeah. So he wasn't into the hard cider then? Uh, at that point, they were making hard liquor uh, to keep his family alive during the Depression, he tells me. So, mm. yeah, not hard cider, though. They didn't make that. We're going to have to maybe have another discussion another time about how to make hard liquor from vegetables. Yeah. And yeah. I'm imagining one of those might be potatoes. It was. It was potatoes. Yeah. They did it back in the woods, and they did the moonlight thing where they take it into town by a full moon so they could uh, skip the revenuers. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So uh, when did you discover a love of horticulture? Uh, in college, uh, like most people in biology, I was a pre-med major. And then uh, I took a horticulture class and fell in love with uh, horticulture. And uh, that's when my undergraduate degree was in. And uh, I took a uh, fruit class. And actually what I fell in love with was not persimmons, but it was seedless grapes. And that was my first introduction into fruit growing was growing seedless grapes. And were you just growing them for yourself or were you growing them at at your family's property? Well, when I was in college, uh, it was a course in uh, living in an apartment. So I asked my parents if I could put grapes at uh, their place in Silver Spring, Maryland. And they said, while you're in college, you can have it there as soon as you get out of there. 
for undergraduate, uh, take it with you. So I took cuttings off my grapevines and I would root them every year and put them in little three gallon pots. And when I met my now wife, uh, I had probably about four or five seedless grapes in pots. And where most people have house plants out on their uh, little balcony, we had potted grapevines. My friends used to laugh at me and they said, what are you doing with those? And I said, I'd reroot them every year. And I told them some day I will own a farm. And again, they laughed at me, but now I own four farms and uh, we've put it together into 105 acres up in uh, Westminster. Uh, they're all adjacent to each other and it's a beautiful operation. looks like a big experiment station. Nice. So uh, aside from the grapes, and we'll probably get into some other unusual things mm-hmm. to grow for the Mid-Atlantic today, oh, yeah. you are known locally as the persimmon guy. That's how I I know you from local farmer's markets. So <laughs> now is the height of persimmon season? It is. We've moved into persimmon season. And mm-hmm. and I, I like uh, having been called the persimmon man. I mean, <laughs> whatever we're selling we're that for that week, you know, the apple person, the peach person. So now I'm a persimmon guy, I guess. And actually, I'm an entomologist, so I get to be all these cat, wear all these caps. But as far as moving into it, yes, uh, as it gets into the cooler weather, the um, persimmons, diosporus, uh, really start to get their flavor to them, especially the oriental types. The um, native persimmon really won't come into its own until we've had several hard frost. Then it'll probably be almost Thanksgiving or a little later before that really is edible because of the tannins they have to break down with that cold weather. Hmm. So let's get into that a little bit since we're talking about the differences between the native and the Asian varieties. So you said there's tannins that need to be broken down with the cold. So that's different from how other um, edibles in the garden, we let them be exposed to frost so that the sugars can develop, say like in peas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's not the case for persimmons. They don't develop sugars in them. Well, they, they do develop sugars, but the tannin really does have to break down. Um, the, if you bite into a persimmon uh, before these tannins have broken down, it's, it's what we call astringent. Uh, otherwise, it tastes like biting into a, a hunk of chalk. <laughs> you'll you'll pucker up your mouth when you mm. you bite into that. But uh, when it's had several very hard freezes on the native ones, it breaks all those tannins down, and then you you the sugars are developing in there. It's just the tannins covering a lot of those up. Um, so then you you're getting the sweetness out of it. But at that point, it it's a pretty puckery looking little piece of fruit on the native ones. It's rather wrinkled and not overly attractive. Let me put it that way. So. Um, but it's still very tasty, and it's good for puddings, pies, uh, jams, and that sort of thing when it's at that state. Hmm. That's a great point, Stanton, that the native one, it's they're both beautiful trees, the Asian oh, yeah. or the native ones, but the native fruit is not as beautiful as those beautiful Asian persimmons you find at the market. They're, it's kind of like, uh, it looks like it's been bruised up, I guess you could say that it fall, it's fallen on the ground. And is it true that you have to wait till the native ones have fallen to the ground? Well, they don't have to fall to the ground, but, but if you do have deer in the area and they do fall to the ground, you're, you're going to be a giant magnet for deer populations and raccoons and possum and everything else. Everything loves those things. It's like candy falling to the ground. If you do go to, you can get them when they fall to the ground, no doubt about it, but you better be quick about it because those animals will find it. Um, generally, uh, the ones we have up at the farm, will go up a ladder 
and um, you can feel them there just before they're going to drop. We try and get them off the tree, one, because you don't have the, the animals feeding on them, obviously, but the other thing is you have all sorts of dirt get on it when it falls into the ground, and it, it's, it's kind of a loose piece of fruit right then. You're going to get all sorts of things embedded in there, so it'd be better to, to take it off the tree, but you're going to have to taste it on that tree before you start harvesting them. And uh, you had to go through several very hard freezes, not these light ones that we had this last week. Hmm. And so once they're ripe, they don't mm -hmm. ripen anymore once you pick them, I mean. Well, the, the, as far as the, uh, the sweetness, mm -hmm. um, pretty much, I mean, they, they will sweeten a little bit. They'll go to a point. And then after that, then they begin to decompose. Um, so we have picked them and then uh, held them. And we usually will put them in a cooler when they do that. And um, we can hold them usually about three or four weeks in a cooler. You could stick it in your refrigerator and do that too. Um, and they will soften a little more and, and get a little sweeter. But then it, they reach a point and then they, they go from sweetness into just kind of a um, decomposing state. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's probably another major difference between our Native American persimmons and the Asian ones is that the Asian ones seem to be much longer storing. Mm -hmm. Well, the, there's different types of Asian ones too. Um, there are certain varieties of Asian that are called non-astringent. So otherwise they're not high in the tannins. Um, mm -hmm. And, but there are Asian types that are astringent, just like the American ones. And um, the, in Japan and China, some people prefer astringent types, believe it or not. They, they will wait until they have hard frost. And in some cases they will take the fruit, harvest those astringent types and they put it in a freezer. And they've worked out how long to do that for. And it breaks down the tannins and then they'll pull it out. And they say those are sweeter than the, the ones that are firm, the non-astringent. Now, but personally, I prefer the non-astringent types because like you're describing, you can harvest them when they're firm. They, they uh, usually turn a yellow-orange color and, um, and they're very nice and sweet. They have more of a, um, a flavor, I, I attribute closer to an apricot, at least for me. That does bring up the flavor differences. Yeah. So maybe we can talk about the how a native is uh, as opposed to a few of the different varieties of the Asian one. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the native, again, um, you're eating when it's softer piece of fruit. So it, it's not going to be that firm. Well, you wouldn't be able to get it down if it was firm. But once it's softened, then it's more almost like a marmalade jelly. Um it is very, very sweet, and it is very nice, very delightful if, if you get it after those tannins are broken down. But the, uh, say, the oriental types, like uh, the one that we grow is called Guangyang, and that's from a district in Korea. It's a, be like, saying Montgomery County or Prince George's County. It's a, it's a region of uh, Korea that's the south of Seoul. Um, and that one uh, was introduced to me by Dr. Bill Preston, and I can't really claim to be the, the persimmon man. I mean, if anybody was the persimmon man, it was Dr. Preston. Uh, him and Dr. Shanks from the University of Maryland traveled over to the Orient, evidently back in the 1960s period is what they tell me. And they collected uh, persimmons from China, all parts of Japan, Southern, Middle and Northern. And uh, they collected them from Korea. And they brought them back to USDA Beltsville and planted all these oriental persimmons in a, a big plot. And they evaluated them over years. And they were seeing which ones were sweetest. Uh, 
But the big thing they were checking for was which ones were hardy for growing mm -hmm. here in Maryland. And of all the varieties they tested, um, they found Guang Yang, the one from Korea, was a non-astringent type. It had a beautiful color, a nice shape, looks like a kind of a squatty tomato. And it was the most winter hardy of all the varieties. And um, Dr. Preston wrote a book called The Persimmon. And you can find that if you do searches for it. Um, he honored me by signing a, a copy. And so I have one of the rare signed copies. Uh, Bill passed away about four years ago. Um, but he had a family farm down in Calvert County where they had a rather extensive planting of oriental persimmons. And uh, he would sell them for years or harvest them. And, and after he retired from USDA in the 1990s, uh, he would sell at the Tacoma Park Market. And he was known as the Persimmon Man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, he had the Guang Yang and he had, he had one or two other varieties that grew that, that were winter hardy that did very nicely down in Calvert's County. Nice. And do you know if any of his trees survived or were passed on to anyone? Well, the, um, it was a family farm. So, um, he had brothers and sisters and they, um, before Bill passed away, they sold it and, uh, a couple bought it that, um, were actually real estate agents. They were investors and they harvested the fruit in the first year and sold it and did very well because the fruit sells for around $4 a pound and, and you can get, uh, so at least uh, maybe 150 pounds off a tree. So they did very well out of it. But then they found out about all the work involved with pruning, shaping, everything else. And they realized they didn't know much about fruit. So they sold it to a young couple. And I believe that young couple is still selling at Tacoma Park Market. And these are trees that uh, Bill Preston installed years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do see them come to Tacoma Hort, uh, Tacoma Park, sorry, mm -hmm. market under Preston Persimmons. And you oh, can, is that what they're calling Yeah, them? and you can find them on uh, social media too. And they only do that one variety of yes. persimmons. So that's great. It was one of the things that Bill taught me uh, over the years was, and it, he became a very good friend. The He taught me how to graft the trees. And um, and he was very patient with me because his, it's one of the harder trees I've had to graft and, and have a take out of it. It seems to be rather difficult to do. Um, but he, he said two things I'm going to teach you one, only grow this variety. And, uh, and he said, the other thing is, this is the only variety I can tell you that is truly winter hardy here. And so, um, at first in my orchard, I stayed true to Bill's wise words and only grew Guang Yang. Uh, years later, my job with the, uh, as an entomologist worked with a nursery and greenhouse industry, one of our nurserymen started growing other varieties of persimmon, uh, in Frederick. And uh, he would sell the trees to landscapers. And I, I told him, well, Guang Yang's the only hardy one here. Well, we had a stretch of very warm winters for about seven in a row. And he said, oh, no, you can grow these other varieties. They're hardy here. So, so I put in an order with him for some of these other varieties and thought, well, let's expand out and try some other ones. What happened was they grew well for about two years. Then we had something come through called the polar vortex. If you remember about maybe 12 years ago, we had an extreme cold period that mm -hmm. flew down from the north. Yep. It went down to eight below. And then uh, about three years later, we had something called the polar express that came through. And this is all involved with the climate change. We're getting more violent weather. Both of those cold periods killed all those other varieties in that nursery. And they killed the trees I planted up in my farm, except for Guang Yang. Guang Yang came through. 
the, the other thing that I was, uh, he had taught me was on, you just grow guang yang one cause winter hardy, but the tree is self fertile. And when you just put that one variety out, it will be virtually seedless. If you just grow guang yang, if you put in another variety, then pollen can come from the other variety and you'll start to see seed develop in that one and the other variety that you planted. So you get little seeds inside. So at least I kept mine separate from the Guang Yang. And that's worked very well. So if you pick a um, an Oriental um, persimmon, when you're looking in your, your catalogs or looking on, online, um, I, I would suggest Guang Yang. But if you pick another variety, um, the Jiro is, is, does well here too. Uh, Stark sells a, a good one that's pretty hardy. But just pick that one variety or at least plant it in one area and don't have it near the other one that it can pollinate because otherwise you'll get seed production inside there. And really it's, it's better to have a piece of fruit that's seedless. And when you say not in the same area, is that 20 yards apart? <laughs> How far? Yeah, it really has to do with the, the wind and the pollinators as far as they would go. Mm-hmm. If, if you're talking about a residential yard, I, would didn't, I wouldn't put another one in your yard and ask your neighbors, don't get your neighbors to start growing nearby. <laughs> but if you're a couple of neighborhoods away, then you'd be fine. The uh, chance of the pollinator carrying that in or the wind carrying in would be rather slim. Yeah. Would they cross with a native persimmon that might be nearby? They can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. In fact, uh, there's some hybrids they have, if you look on the market, um, that have advertised where they've crossed the native uh, persimmon, uh, native to North America, with the oriental types um they have one they crossed in the ukraine um that they call nikita's gift and that's a cross of oriental type and another diaspora not the the american one but one native to uh, the ukraine they cross those two and they have a hybrid between them and then if you look in the catalogs they'll have things like um there's one called meters uh, delight and meters delight is a cross of an american persimmon um, native persimmon with the um, orient, one of the oriental types. So yes, they can cross pollinate. Um, not that the fruit would be any different on that tree. It's the seed, you just produce seed and there's what's going to happen out of that. And then if you took the seed and grew that up, then it would be a hybrid between those two plants. And getting back to that hard work you talked about earlier for the next generation taking on an orchard, mm-hmm. um, so let's talk about some of that maintenance for the persimmon trees. What do you start off? Maybe we'll go through a calendar year. So sure. uh, do we do anything January through March? Not really. The, um, you can plant a uh, oriental persimmon into the fall here. In fact, I have um, four that are coming this next week that I'll be putting installing in early November. Um, it's just, you know, you have to work in a lot of compost into the soil and make sure it's a very good fertile soil. Uh, pH usually between 5.6 to 6.3, somewhere in that range. It's slightly acidic. It's not as particular as some of the other fruit trees like an apple would be or peach um, that you'd have to have a higher pH. But prep the soil and have it all growing. That's it. Now, as far as the pruning, generally I don't do pruning until we've gone through the cold part of the winter. And that would be usually February here. Uh, Sometimes it's early March. The uh, And the reason you're waiting off on that is if you have any cold entry to the wood, you could see that as you move into the end of February, early March, and you can prune out that, that damaged wood. If you have varieties that are, um, if you're not going to use the Guang Yang, use one of these other varieties. And, and you can grow some of these other ones if you're in a city area like down in uh, 
lower part of Montgomery County or closer to DC, it's a, you've got microenvironments there. So it's a little bit warmer. Where my orchard is, we're up in Westminster and we're at a thousand foot elevation. So it gets colder there. So um, I wouldn't fool with these other varieties. Um, but the Guangyang, I usually don't see the winter damage there. Now, going back to it, as far as the pruning, um, so say you establish in the spring or you establish in the fall, you're just going to basically let it grow for the first uh, two or three years. There isn't a whole lot of maintenance to an oriental persimmon in the beginning. Um, basically, you want as many leaves coming out there to expand the trunk and branches. You might do some slight pruning in March uh, for branches that are very sharp angled if they're coming up. You want branches to spread out. Um, generally, I'll let them have a, a central leader to the tree and we'll go up to about maybe five or six feet on that central leader. Then we'll um, try and develop scaffold branches going outward. Uh, that's the bear the weight. The tree is not a huge tree by, you know, if you just let it go, it's only going to get around. The Guangyang is usually going to top out at about 12 feet in height. If you wanted to keep it smaller, you certainly can prune them for that. And that's generally what we do in our orchard is most of our fruit trees, we will prune to keep it down at usually under eight feet. You're going to get more bearing the bigger the tree. If you let it go up 12 feet, but keep in mind, you're going to have to go up a ladder to harvest that fruit. And uh, when you harvest a uh, persimmon, the oriental types, and even the native ones, they, they tend to hold the calyx, which is um, the, the base of where the fruit is. After the flowers on there, they have the calyx there. It's, it looks like a cap, and it's attached to the fruit. If you try and pull it, it usually will wound the top of that fruit. You'll open it up, so now it's going to break down. Usually, we'll take pruning shears up and actually cut the little small branch and then come back and then cut in close to that. Leave the calyx intact when you're selling it. And then as it matures, you can easily pull that cap out of there when you're going to go to eat it. Um, but you leave that calyx cap on there. And so for continued pruning throughout the season, mm -hmm. is do you do it um, to thin the fruits at all like you would on an apple tree or do you leave it alone? Uh, we have just let ours bear. Um, mm -hmm. If you thin a fruit, what you're going to get is a bigger, the remaining fruit is going to be bigger. Um, but we found uh, uh, a lot of times we don't thin ours. We get something that is maybe around, if you have a fair amount of rain, you're going to get something that would be about three inches across, and it's about an inch and a half high. For the market we sell in, for farmer's market, that size seems to fit most people's needs. If, if you thinned it, yeah, you'd get bigger fruit. But a lot of times people look at things and they get too big. They say, well, that's too much fruit for me to handle, which finds, you might find it peculiar to hear that, but we hear that very commonly at our farm mm -hmm. market. So, so we don't thin is what it gets down to on the um, oriental persimmons. The, it's not dense, dense like a peach tree or a plum on the fruit set on that. Uh, they tend to space themselves out on there. Sometimes you might have one on either side, but usually you have at least several inches in between the fruit. So um, it does a pretty nice job of spacing itself out without having to thin those. Um, it is an extremely attractive tree at this time of year. When that fruit is starting to show the, the yellow color and then turning that orange, it, it, even if you aren't going to harvest the fruit, it's just spectacular looking. Yeah, I agree, Stanton. I think it's a beautiful landscape tree, even mm -hmm. if you never get one fruit from it. Yeah. And that can probably bring us around to... Huh. Everybody else likes to eat persimmons, as you mentioned before. Right. 
so what do you do to stop the squirrels and deer and raccoons? <laughs> well, <laughs> the squirrels probably are, are a major, major problem in urban areas. In our orchard, we're up in the country and it's out in the open. We have enough uh, hawk activity that squirrels really don't come into our orchard because we, we get people at the market all the time. So what do you do for squirrels? And I said, I don't worry about them. <laughs> we have so many predators, they won't come out. They stay back in the woods area. Now, uh, in a residential setup, what I would do is just stay on top of your fruit. When um, the diosporus and his khaki is the, the, the genus on that, um, when you see it start to show a yellow color to it, and uh, it doesn't have to turn orange, but just that yellow color, you can harvest it. And we will take those, if we want to hold them, we'll put them in our cooler, which we hold at 31 degrees Fahrenheit, because fruit with the sugars in there won't freeze the fruit, uh, but it, it slows down respiration. Well, that way we can hold those for a fair amount of time. When we're ready to go to market, we will pull them out of the cooler, and we just put them at um, usually around 60 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere it could be up to 70. And what it will do is the fruit will go from that light yellow and it will start to darken up in color and soften and the sugars will increase in that. And so you can almost stage it for when it goes to market. So usually we'll take it to market when they're orange because most people associate that with ripeness and then we tell them, yeah, okay, that, that's fine. That's, that's good. If you get it when it's lighter yellow, we tell them, just be patient, take it home with you, put it out on your counter and just let it sit. If you want to speed it up, you could take a, a paper bag and put a um, apple in there. The ethylene given off by the apple would maturate fruit faster. Okay, you just put the bag around to hold the ethylene around there. Um, so that's about it. So you can pick it early, and if you pick it early, then the squirrels are going to leave it alone. <laughs> Once it turns orange on the tree, and it's nice to ripen on the tree, and it looks really attractive. Trouble is, you are going to attract in all those animals that love to feed on it. Um, and one you didn't mention, and it's a big, big deal this year, uh, we can tell from the entomology end, is the European hornet. Mm. Uh, European hornets are big black and yellow uh, hornets. They, they came in from Europe back in the uh, mid-1800s. Uh, they were brought in on shipping, and they've pretty much established all across the United States now. This year, for some reason, they're extremely, extremely active or have been in September and October. And if they find a persimmon that is going to orange color, I guarantee they will go over and start chewing into that fruit because they're picking up the sugars out of there and they're going to want to harvest it. And uh, you'll be you can still get your fruit out of there, but you're going to be fighting that uh, hornet <laughs> to get the fruit. So um, I would pick it when it's got the yellow color. And then ripen it inside. Do it that way. That's that's the best way to go on that. And any follicular diseases or other issues that persimmons might need to be sprayed for? Yeah, it well it depends on the season. Um, in 2018 and 2019, um, basically in 2018 it rained the whole year from March until October. With that, that was the year we had over 100 inches of rain, which set a new record. And in 2019, it basically rained from March until July, and then the rain turned off. And then we went to California dry weather. So in those years, uh, if you did not spray with a fungicide preventatively, um, your fruit really didn't look very attractive. It, it had a lot of spots on it. There's several um, different uh, uh, leaf spotting fungi scabs that will show up on those. Now, if you have a dry year, 
a relatively dry year, I should put it that way. We're in, by July, I mean, uh, say mid-June, July, August, if it's not raining a whole lot, then you probably can get by and not have to really treat a oriental persimmon. But in a wet, this year was rather wet this summer. If you didn't, I've uh, do an uh, independent uh, consulting for uh, growers down in uh, Northern Virginia. And I was down to visit some of theirs. They look beautiful in the season. They chose not to use any fungicides on there. And uh, the, when I last visited about a month ago, the fruit looked awful. I mean, mm. it had spots all over it. They, they were planning to cut around those. And I said, but you're not going to sell those commercially. There's no one's going to want the fruit. Now, the native persimmon uh, is much more adapted to our climate because that evolved over time that exists here. It, it can show spotting on, on the skin. But usually when it wrinkles down, by the time you're harvesting it, you really don't notice it anymore. It looks so gosh awful anyhow that it's it's still quite usable and would go into the marketplace. But the oriental tights, because of that firm skin, especially Guang Yang or uh, the Jiro, it would be very noticeable. And most people would find it objectionable. So you'd have to use some fungicides during those wet periods. Now, is there a schedule of that? Now, you really, in a commercial orchard, we, we go by spore counts. Um, they have uh, things that are done up at Penn State at the Bigler Experiment Station where they'll take spore counts. When we see they're high, then you use a preventative fungicide at that point, you know, short residual materials, but it has to be preventative. And for planting around the persimmon trees, are they like other fruit trees that don't like anything in their root zone or can you intermingle things there? Yeah, I wouldn't uh, intermingle anything with a uh, persimmon. And they um, do have a tendency to try and sucker shoot out of the base. So you might have to take out some of those sucker shoots uh, and remove those. Most of the oriental types like the guanyang or jiro or any of those others are grafted either on a Japanese understock or a um, they're put on the American uh, persimmon understock. And so if it tries to grow from down to the base and it's coming out of that understock, you definitely want to cut that off because you won't get the fruit that, that you bought, that you wanted. Hmm. Yeah, you would be getting whatever that... Whatever the understock was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and some of the, the, the Japanese understocks, remember I mentioned earlier about... Uh, 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 straying away from Bill Preston's wise advice of only using guanyang. Mm-hmm. Some of those ones I got that winter killed, they killed the top, but the root systems are still very hardy and they were Japanese uh, understocks. Mm-hmm. And I, I let them grow up to see what they did. Um, they're small little dinky fruit that tastes terrible. And they're very ornamental. If you just wanted to grow them as an ornamental, they'd be fine, but they, they really didn't taste uh, very good they it's just not a worthwhile plant so i ended up taking those out completely so um how do you use your persimmons that you eat do you make preserves do you make pie what's your favorite way to prepare them yeah i wish i could tell you that because uh we sell ours at markets uh we sell them at the farm markets and sell them to caterers and restaurants um we so far we've never had an excess of them to use them uh, my wife makes uh, jams out of just about all the other fruits we grow. And, and my gosh, we have so many different things we grow at that orchard. And she tries to sneak away some of those persimmons from me to make jams. And I always throw them back into the bin to sell them um, because people, the demand's so strong on them. So we haven't had a chance to make them into anything. Now, Bill Preston, um, years ago with Jim Shanks, held something at the, there's a place called the Old Mill, 
which is right over in Prince George's County, right in the Montgomery County border uh, on Old Branch Creek. And they held something called the Persimmon Festival. And every year they made persimmon ice cream. They made persimmon cakes. They made persimmon cake uh, cookies. They made persimmon pudding. Everything was about persimmons. And um, it was very fun. I got to try all those. They, they all taste wonderful. So you can use it for a lot of different things, yes. Uh, but jams, I would say they'd be marvelous at. Uh, we were selling to one of the high-end restaurants in Baltimore for a number of years, and they only they did not want our oriental ones. They wanted only native persimmons, which was, was wonderful because we, we had freebies already growing at our orchard. <laughs> so all I'd do is go up the trees and, and cut those off and sell them to them. And I asked them what they were doing with it, and they were making them into... Uh, to jams and they would sell them at their high-end restaurant and uh, the jams were between 15 to 20 dollars for a little four ounce um, uh, jam uh, jar so they they, they uh, definitely had value added to them it had a wonderful flavor to it um, I'm sure with everybody uh, using beer <laughs> with everything with pawpaws in it and all the sort you could probably put Persimmon in a beer, I guess, if you really wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I can see it like a persimmon hard cider mix, like we talked yeah, about yeah. hard cider before, or maybe persimmon wine. Oh, yeah. Lots of things you can do with it. Yeah, but that persimmon ice cream that you mentioned and that persimmon festival, wow. I'm sorry I missed that. Yeah. Well, we need to probably revive it. We need to find a grower with enough plants to... Mm -hmm. I'm trying to increase our, our uh, number of trees at our place. We have maybe about uh, 12 at this point, but we're trying to increase the number because demand is so strong for these uh, mm -hmm. oriental persimmons. Yeah, I think maybe between you and the Preston Orchards, yeah. and maybe some others, we can probably get that back again someday. Hopefully. And so some other fruit that's coming into uh, ripening right now, you had mentioned before we went on the air, the shea fruit or che fruit, the melon fruit. Yes, um, well, it's C-H-E. Mm -hmm. is a spelling on that. Now, depends on where you're from. Um, I've mentioned to uh, someone who was just out to my orchard from China, and I called it uh, shea fruit, and she called it she fruit. <laughs> and I said, ah, I haven't heard that pronunciation. She said, well, that's she's from the um, uh, central part of China. She said that's how they would say it. The C-H-E um, in Chinese translates to stone. And uh, evidently, the, this fr fruit tree is found grown in stony soil and rocky soil. So it's very adaptable. It's from China, and it's an interesting fruit tree. When um, people come out to my orchard at <laughs> this time of year, it, it, it catches their attention in October, November. It, it's a relatively small tree. It's maybe tops at it around 12 feet, just like the um, Oriental persimmon. But the fruit on it looks very much like a cornus cusa, in a sense, it looks like the human brain, <laughs> and it's about the size of a 50-cent piece, hmm. and um, it's green most of the summer, but as soon as it gets cooler in about mid-October, you'll see it turn pink color, and then as it gets colder in the later part of the month, it turns bright, bright red. We've taken it down to the market, and everybody that walks over there says, I'll take a container of your big raspberries there. <laughs> I look around and I'm, what what raspberries are you talking about? They're pointing to the the shea fruit, and I said, oh no 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 no, that's that's called shea fruit. And they said, well, does it taste like a raspberry? And usually we'll um try a sample of it, take the whole fruit, bite into it, and I I say to them, you know, tell me what you think that flavor is. 
And 95% of the time I will hear it tastes like watermelon or cantaloupe. And I said, well, that's good because it's, it's name in the United States is melon fruit. So it's a very unusual fruit, um, very late in the season. Now, if someone's grown in their backyard and they don't want to do a lot of spraying, that's the fruit for them. It's ideal. We do not treat that with anything. And I haven't seen any pest on it. Uh, we've been growing it since uh, 2002 out there. It's a relatively pest-free fruit. I have not had deer feed on it. Uh, I have not had raccoons go after it. <laughs> and you harvest, uh, we will be harvesting the last time this weekend. That will make the fifth weekend we've harvested off those trees. Now, there, there is male and female trees. So generally you need one male and then we have a couple females. They graft it kind of interesting onto a native plant here that we have here called the Osage orange. Okay. Huh. Now, now Osage orange yeah. is a very vigorous tree and um, it has such a, a aggressive root system that um, for some reason that, that they've chosen to graft it onto that uh, rootstock. So it, it's more tolerant of soils. So you do need to watch if you see something come out of the base because uh, Osage orange will have, the branches have thorns on them. And so you have to take those sucker shoots out of there. Otherwise you'll be dealing with some nasty little thorns coming out of the understock part. But the tree itself, the shea is basically thornless. It's a fun fruit on there. If you go to Edible Landscape down in Percival, Virginia, they several years ago started offering a seedless uh, what they're calling a seedless variety of it. It has small little seeds in it, a little bit like a, a raspberry seed. Um, the seedless one doesn't have as many of those little seeds, but um, you only need one tree, only need a female. You don't, it, it's self-fertile. And um, we started growing those. What I found is they're not as vigorous as the ones where you need a male and female and they're slower growing. It takes it's going to take you six or seven years before it really comes into production for the seedless version. But if you're patient, um, you can get by with just one. The, the new ones I'm planning, I only put in the seedless ones in other parts of the orchard uh, where I don't have to rely on a male. But we still just keep the one male around for our pollen source. But a fun fruit to grow relatively, if you want to get by without doing a lot of spraying with fungicides or insecticides, um, it's a good plant to be the, the play around with, but it comes very late in the season. Hmm. And for those uh, podcast listeners, you might recall that we had Mike McConkey of Edible Landscaping <laughs> um, on episode 22. So that was August of 2020. And go back and listen to that episode for some more tips on great fruit trees for the Mid-Atlantic. And I think we might have touched on the Che, but I don't think we went into it that much. So that's great to hear about it, especially since it's a fall timing fruit. And another one you said you're growing that is coming into ripening now is the beach plum. Well, beach plum, um, we go over that briefly. And it's one of the one I want to do was the citrus too, after that, if we could. But uh, beach plum is mm -hmm. a native plum. And um, it, it's not this time of year. It was a little bit earlier. Um, plums generally are, they ripen, most of the varieties will ripen in July and August. Beach plums start to ripen end of August, and they pretty much go through the whole month of September. Um, the, they're native to the East Coast. You can find them from Maine all the way down to Georgia uh, in some of the coastal areas. You don't find it in Maryland, though, and there's a good reason. Um, <laughs> our 
beach that we have is Ocean City, Maryland. Well, that was hmm. created by a hurricane, ah. and um, the beach palms never got established there. And the place that they would be growing would be Azatec Island. But what do we have on Azatec Island? <laughs> got all those wild horses. There you go. And they've eaten all the uh, beach palms <laughs> down the ground. So they're, they, they love them. <laughs> Uh, and also deer love them also. They, they love beach palms. But if you're from New England, you would know that uh, fruit. It, it Usually after uh, Labor Day, people go back into the dunes and they it grows as a, almost a small tree or shrub. And they would harvest the beach plums. Now, they're small. They're only about the size of a big blueberry. And they have a big hard seed pit in them. And they're tart. And you think, well, why would anybody grow that? Well, people from New England would harvest them and then they would put them in things like nylon hose or whatever some sort of uh, net bag and boil them in water and they would make jellies out of them and it makes a wonderful wonderful jelly now one of my cohorts in in the uh, university system was working on his doctorate at cornell university his name is dr richard uva and uh, richard uh, actually took these wild species and looked at cultivating them and selecting for bigger size and different colors on those. Then they now have the patent through Cornell on several name varieties. There's things like Premier and Hancock. Uh, they have a yellow gold. That's a yellow color uh, beach plum. What, what's nice is they're adapted to the East Coast climate. So they're much more disease tolerant than a lot of the uh, European plums that we try and grow in backyards or Oriental types. So it's a nice one to be growing in the landscape. Now, again, my job is working with the nursery and greenhouse industry, state of Maryland. And repeatedly I've shown nurserymen, this is an interesting plant. It's not really sold in the nursery trade, but I'm telling them they, they need to look at it because it has beautiful flower display. It flowers a lot later than any of the other plums. Other plums will be well done, and then about two weeks later, these things open up their blooms. It covers itself with white flowers. It is gorgeous when it's in bloom. And then the little plums that form in there are green color during the summer. And then in the fall, they, they color up. They're, they're kind of bluish purple. Again, even if you weren't harvesting it to, to eat it, it's an extremely attractive tree. And I just haven't had any nurseman jump on this thing yet. So it's just kind of a box that just hasn't been opened up yet. The cultivated varieties, the Hancock and the Premier, will give you a fruit that's about the size of a, a uh, between a dime and a nickel in size. And so it still has a pit in the center. It is a little tartar plum than most people are used to. You're used to the um, Oriental types, the round ones, and the European types they call prune plums. Those are extremely sweet. This is a much tartar flavor. Now, when we first brought it into our farm market, um, most Americans, when we let them sample it, thought they were blueberries, number one. They thought they were big blueberries. And we said, no, be careful. It's got a pit in the center. Um, but when they pop it in their mouth, they're thinking really sweet. And they get a funny look on their face. <laughs> but we have many uh, uh, of our clientele are from Europe, uh, especially northern part of Europe. And uh, they tend not to be raised on sugar like most Americans here. I mean, from the get-go, we're given sugary drinks and soft drinks and sodas and everything and uh, milkshakes that's not as doesn't occur as much in the northern part of uh, Europe so they like that tartar flavor so we've developed a, a very big clientele now for this native plum that has kind of a tart flavor 
And if you let it go really long, it actually does get sweeter. If you let it a little hang on that plant a little bit longer, um, it is small and you have to get the idea a smaller plum, but it's much more disease tolerant than our other plums that, the, uh, that you'd be trying to grow in your backyard. Um, it is self-fertile. So you just need the one variety on the thing. Um, I would get the name varieties, Premier and Ozark are the, um, or Hancock, excuse me, um, Hancock are two good ones. They have a gold one that's also available. Um, you'll have to search around to find them. If you get the straight species, they're going to be a smaller thing. They're only going to be about the size of a blueberry, um, which is still okay. If it's just an ornamental, that'd be fine. And if you're going to make just jams out of it, that, that'd work fine for you. But if you're going for that fruit production, I'd get those name varieties. Hmm. Well, I definitely have to look out for them. And so with our last few minutes left, we definitely wanted to touch on that cold, hardy citrus that you are experimenting with. I'm very excited about those. The um, one of my the night I teach at Montgomery College, and one of my students um, uh, introduced me to uh, varieties of citrus that were more cold hardy. As I looked into it, there's some of the varieties you can find out there that can take it down to um, the uh, low teens. Then I found some that would go below 10 degrees, and now we found some varieties that can take it down to one degree Fahrenheit. I even have a lemon that came through the polar vortex at an eight below for three days in a row and survived. And um, I have that one, it's called Julie. It's not commonly found, it's just something that, I, that I've selected. But you can find some of these hardy citruses if you do a search on the web. There's one called Citrange. And um, Citrange is a very nice orange, very sweet flavor. And that can take it down into the single digit figures and do okay. Um, we've been growing them in, in big pots and we will keep them out until about Thanksgiving. Then we bring them inside for the winter and just keep them in sunny windows through the uh, usually end of March. And then they go back outside again and grow them outside. This year I'm beginning to play with that uh, lemon that I have that took it eight below. And uh, we're gonna try some of the citrines and uh, one of the oranges called Morton's orange that's down to one degree Fahrenheit. And we planted them in Westminster at our orchard. We're gonna see how they ride through this winter. I think we have some potential here. I've seen plantings down in Virginia Beach um, of the Mortons and the Citrange, and it came through the polar vortex. Got a little bit of uh, damage on the foliage, but the fruit seemed to do pretty well. So we might have some um, citrus that looks adaptable for Maryland possibly. Hmm. Yeah, that's going to be really fascinating to follow up on in a few years. Yeah. And do you think, you know, we're talked a little bit about climate change and the extremes that we're going to get, the yeah. extreme highs and lows, and how that might impact some of the fruit tree growing in our region? Yeah, well, the, the last two winters have been relatively mild and about everybody growing figs. I know we weren't going to get on figs too much, but the mm -hmm. figs have done very well. We, we had many people come to the market saying, oh, their fig trees look wonderful. They're producing well. And I said, yeah, you had two mild winters. Mm -hmm. And we can get stretches like this where we have a couple of years where it's very mild winters. And some of these marginal varieties will do very, very well. But realize we are in a climate change thing where it's more extreme. So it may be mild for a couple of winters, but then probably we're going to swing back and get a violent uh, period in between. So you might have to protect things on those real extreme years. And there's ways of doing that. Um, figs, they've done them in Wisconsin, where they actually dig a trench next to the plant. They bundle the branches together and bend them down the ground and bury it. 
Now, once you bury it down like that and put soil over it, weight it down, the roots are hardy to 40 below. And the stems can take it quite cold when they're covered up like that. We've done uh, some trials with uh, one of our uh, uh, people that were growing figs where they used, they bend the branches of the ground. We put carpet over top of it and then weighted that down. And that rode through those extreme periods of the, the polar vortex and the polar express and didn't have the damage. Whereas you had the stems above ground, you will see the damage on them. That is a lot of effort, I must say. <laughs> it is, but it's worth it. Yeah, I would say that is, if, especially if you have one that you particularly love that flavor of that yes. particular variety and that you've really babied along, you, you want to go to that extra ex- effort. Yeah, well, there's the will, there's the way. There's a, um, if I can do a short advertisement, there's a course mm-hmm. that I teach at Montgomery College. Um, I just taught it this last uh, spring called Advanced Fruit Production. It's only offered every two years. So that would be offered in um, uh 2023, if uh, people do want to go further with fruit production and learn all the in-depth things of all the unusual fruit you can grow, um, I would say sign up for the course. Right now, we're doing it online since the COVID came out, and we've increased our enrollment tremendously with that, where it used to be all live. And I think we'll probably go back to hybrids, where it's uh, between the online and live. Great. And how would people be able to contact you, Stanton? Um, the way, uh, if you want to contact me, would be come to our farm market. We're at the Olney Market in, uh, on Sundays from 9 o'clock to 1. You're certainly welcome to visit there and purchase fruit, and uh, we'll have some of the uh, trees we sell there. During the day, you really can't get me because my job is working with the commercial uh, nursery and greenhouse industry in the state, not with the okay. homeowners. Uh, but you can go through Home and Garden Information Center that are uh, set up to deal with the homeowner questions. Great. And for those who are listening outside the Mid-Atlantic area, uh, Stanton is talking about the Olney Maryland market in Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, So if you're ever in the Washington, D.C. area, come on by and visit him there. And again, you can contact him through the University of Maryland Extension office as well. So thank you so much, Stanton, for talking all about persimmons and some of the more unusual fruits. And maybe in a few years, we'll have you back to talk about hardy citrus that is going to overwinter for us here in the Mid-Atlantic. All right. Good. All right. Thank you so much. Cutting lettuce plant profile. Cutting lettuce, also known as cut and come again lettuce, are salad greens grown for their leaves rather than to develop a head. Cutting leaves come in red and green varieties as well as several combinations of the two colors. The leaves can be flat, ruffled, or curly. Lettuce greens are a cool season crop and do best in the spring and fall here in the mid-Atlantic United States. When the summer heat moves in, the plants bolt and send up a flower shoot that produces seeds. You can collect these seeds to plant the next season. Note that lettuce seed must be fresh in order for it to have good germination rates. The seeds are tiny and can be planted directly into the garden soil or in a shallow container. Cover them with a fine layer of soil and water in well. Lettuce prefers rich garden soil and does not need fertilizers. For continual harvests, you can sow additional rows of lettuce seeds every week or two. When the plants are several inches high, 
Use a clean pair of kitchen shears to cut off the largest leaves down to an inch or so above the root crown. Harvest only as much as you will consume right away. In a few weeks, these lettuces will grow back up again, and you will be able to come for another round of cutting. Depending on the length of your growing season, you can usually get at least three or four rounds of cut greens from the plants. Slugs and rabbits love tender lettuce leaves, as do many other garden pests. You can protect your lettuce seedlings with a wire cage or a cover cloth. The cloth can also act to shade the tender leaves as the weather heats up in the late spring and insulates the plants when the autumn frosts move in. Cutting lettuce, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, it happened. The DC area got zapped by a frost and a freeze, and it looks like it's officially the end for the tomatoes and peppers and annual flowers. My pond plants that are floating on the surface haven't got too much of a black edge, but I'll probably pull them out this weekend in any case. So I'm applying straw around my asparagus and strawberries and other perennial plants in our community garden plot. I've also put row cover fabric over the lettuce, spinach, radish, and bok choy to insulate them for the winter time. We still haven't put in our garlic, but that's our plan for this upcoming week. And I've started collecting seeds from those annual flowers that I'm pulling. So some of those favorite zinnias and cosmos I grew this year, I'm definitely going to be setting aside in a special envelope to plant again next year. In the local gardening world, there's a couple events I want to draw your attention to. First is the Silver Spring Garden Club Veterans Day planting of daffodil bulbs at Jessup Blair Park. And that is on the DC Maryland border, right on Georgia Avenue near Eastern Avenue. And we do that at 11 a.m. It's open to guests and anybody who wants to plant daffodils with us. We welcome donations as well. We have about 750 bulbs we're putting in this year that will be added to the several thousand bulbs we put in over the last five to six years at that park. So it's gonna be a beautiful springtime there. Also happening is a fall colors talk that I am giving for the Sandy Spring Museum Garden Club. This event is being held virtually and it's on Sunday, November 14th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And you can sign up for it through the sandyspringmuseum.org website. And our insect columnist for Washington Gardener Magazine is giving an upcoming talk at Brookside Gardens and that is entitled Horticulture Fact and Fiction Debunking Gardening Myths. So that should be a fascinating one and if you've been a past listener of Garden DC podcast she has been one of our past guests talking about orchids and also addressing some of those gardening myths. So that's Carol Allen. She's a faculty member of the Plant Sciences Department at University of Maryland. Uh, there's a nominal fee to sign up for this talk, and it, it is being held virtually. So you can sign up and uh, do it live or get the recording afterwards. And that is on Thursday, November 18th at 6.30 p.m. And you can sign up for that through the Active Montgomery website. Happy gardening!
Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.